Well, today, go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Hebrews 13. We're going to continue, actually wrap up our little mini-series on marriage. We've been spending three work, three weeks on one verse, Hebrews 13.4. Um, let me read it for you. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Re- um, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. All right, so we've been spending three weeks on this, two so far, and you say, how do you spend three weeks on one little verse like this? But the reason that we've had to do it is because uh, this verse talks about marriage, and it talks about sex, and those are two things that are just totally misunderstood in our culture today. So to even talk about this verse, we've had to spend some time defining it, laying the groundwork, getting rid of bad ideas, putting down the right ideas. And, and so the first week, we just had to define marriage. It says, let marriage be held in honor by all. How do we honor marriage if we don't know what it is? So we define marriage, and we call it a comprehensive union, sealed by a covenant between a man and a woman that is permanent, monogamous, and faithful. That's what marriage is supposed to be. And then we continued to walk through the verse last week and said, okay, that's what marriage is. Now, why would we honor it? And how do we honor it? We said, well, there's at least three reasons why we honor it. One, it's, it can provide great joy. Amen. Marriage is wonderful. It can be a source of great joy. Um, marriage is foundational to society. It's that little building block, the basic Lego on which everything else is built. So we need the important, it's important that way. Um, and also, ultimately, marriage is uh, good. We should honor it because it displays the glory of Christ's love for the church. It's a picture of Jesus and the church, the way Christ loves us. is how we're supposed to love one another, laying down our lives for each other, sacrificially honoring the other in a committed, faithful, lifelong, unconditional relationship. And then we talked about how, and I'll give you a few examples. I won't go over those again. Uh, but one of the biggest ones, one of the biggest hows to honor marriage, I didn't talk about because we need to spend a whole week this week talking about it. It's the major thrust of verse 4. We honor marriage by keeping the marriage bed pure. We honor marriage by keeping the marriage bed clean. Let's read verse 4 again. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And that's really where we've been the last two weeks, just in that half of the verse. What is marriage? How do we honor it? But then there's more, right? And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. What's this talking about? Uh, He's saying keep the marriage bed clean. Keep it pure. Don't let it be dirty or defiled. Uh, Is this just a simple command to make sure to change your sheets often? No. Okay. It's, it's It's not talking about that. This is clearly a euphemism for the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And the command that we have is to keep that undefiled, to keep it pure, and to keep it clean. Now, the implication of a command like that is that the nature of married sex is such that it could either be clean or it can be impure. There's things that you can do, on the one hand, that will make the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife uh, good and clean and pure. And on the other hand, there are things that can be done, attitudes that you can have, that can make your marriage relationship, your marriage sex relationship, unclean, unsatisfying, defiled, and impure. 
So by giving us a command that says, keep the marriage bed clean, the implication is there's things that you can do to make it clean, and there's things that you can do to make it unclean. Now, nobody wants bad sex. Nobody does. Everybody wants to do it right. And the surprising thing, maybe to you, is that God wants us to do it right too. And so he gives us commands. He gives us commands. He wants us to have a good sexual relationship with his spouse. So he says things like, honor marriage by not letting anything spoil married sex. Keep it good. Keep it clean. Keep it pure. Now, like the other parts of this verse, we're going to have to take some time to unpack that. What does that mean when he says, keep it clean, keep it good, keep it pure? Because that's very different from what the world says. The world's idea of what's good sex is very different from the Bible's idea. And so we've got to ask some clarifying questions today. I've just got two big ones. The first one is, how do we keep the marriage bed clean? And the second one is, what do we do if the marriage bed is dirty? Okay, so how do we keep it clean? And then what do we do if it's dirty? First question, how do we keep the marriage bed clean? And the first thing we do is that we reserve sex for marriage. Okay? So how do we keep the marriage bed clean? We reserve sex for marriage. Uh, we, it talks about a bed here, right? This bed. And it's important to notice that the bed is a marriage bed. The context makes that clear. He's talking about marriage. And every modern translation brings out that this bed that's in view is the marriage bed. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that the bed is a marriage bed? Uh, well, it matters because it means that the sex that we're talking about here is married sex. The command in this verse to not let it be undefiled, it's not some generic command to have clean sex, whether it's unmarried or married. No, specifically, the instructions here are for sex in marriage because there is no such thing as pure clean, undefiled sex that happens outside of marriage. Sex was designed by God to be reserved for marriage, so by definition, anything outside of that is impure. To have pure, undefiled sex, like this verse commands, the first requirement is that it must be within the boundaries of marriage. Okay, now this is hugely countercultural. Hugely countercultural. Many people reject it as too restrictive. Just this week, I saw a headline, uh, an actress promoting a new movie, Jessica Alba, and she said um, she left evangelical Christianity as a teenager because she found its views on premarital sex too restrictive. Okay, So this is out there. This is a lot of people. A lot of people have this same view. And admittedly, it is restrictive. It is restrictive. We're saying, the Bible's saying, sex is to be restricted to marriage. You should only have sex with one person, your spouse, and only when you're married to your spouse. So it is restrictive, but in a very wise way. Because things that are powerful need restrictions. Things that are powerful need restrictions. How many people here have been to the Peoria Zoo? Anybody? Show of hands. Crowd participation. Good. Okay. Now, you know, in the Peoria Zoo, one of the things they do is they let peacocks just wander around. Have you encountered the peacocks? They're just free-range peacocks. Just walking around the zoo and you can see them. And they're just, there's no, no restrictions on the peacocks. They can go wherever they want. They can wander around. Now, why is that? It's because there's peacocks. What are they going to do? Wave their fan at you? 
right? They're just, they're not, they're not threatening. They're just peacocks. They don't have any power. They, they don't need restrictions. I was talking about this with my five-year-old this week and, uh, and I said, hey, what do you think would happen if they let the lions wander around like the peacocks? And it took her like a second. She's like, are you crazy? They would eat all the people. No one would go to the zoo. I was like, you're right. That is crazy. Okay, so why do we let the peacocks wander around with no restrictions, but the lions need restrictions? It's because the lions are much more powerful than the peacocks. Okay, the lions are so powerful that if they didn't have restrictions, they could destroy us. And sex is like that. It is too powerful to be totally liberated. It's too powerful just to let wander around with no restrictions whatsoever. It's like a lion. If you just let it go, it can destroy you. Okay, and we, we know sex is powerful. The advertisers have been on this for years, right? You can use sex to sell anything. You know, there's the standbys, of course, beer and cars and clothing. Um, I mean, but we're so used to this, we don't even think anymore. But sex is used to sell things like bottled water, Greek yogurt, website domain registration, right? And, and a lot of you probably don't even know what website domain registration is, but the, the, that's kind of the point, because if they put a woman with large breasts in the commercial, all of a sudden you're interested. i got to find out more about this. What is this? Website domain registration. It's powerful. It can lure you in. Sex is powerful. We know, And so we know it has to have restrictions. It has to have restraints. It can't just wander freely. And God says, here's the big one. The big restriction, the big constraint, the way that you have pure, undefiled sex is keep it in marriage. Keep it in marriage, within the bonds of covenantal, committed, lifelong, faithful love. To switch metaphors a little bit and maybe belabor the point. Sex is like lying. It's also like a fire. And I've talked about this before, but fires are great. Fires are wonderful. I have a fireplace in my house. I use it often, in the winter mostly. Uh, but they're, they're great. They, they can provide a lot of heat, a lot of comfort, beauty. Okay, And, and that's what sex is like. It, it's, it's a gift from God. And when it's confined to the fireplace, it can provide a lot of good, a lot of uh, beauty. A lot, I mean, it's, it's great joy. It can sustain relationships. It can express love. But here's the problem. People see that. They see the goodness of sex in marriage and say, well, if that's good there... Then let's let's just let's get it out. Let's have as much as possible. Let's, let's not restrict it to marriage anymore. Let's go. Let's let's have sex in every possible context that we can imagine. Because if it's good in marriage, it must be better everywhere else. Well, you know that's like saying that fire looks so great in your fireplace. Let's go build one in the kitchen, and let's build one in the rec room, and let's put one in the in the in the bedroom, and, and one on the living room floor because more fire would be better, right? And and the thing is, if you did that, you would get some heat, you would get some light. It's still a fire but you'd burn your house down. Okay, and that's what happens when we take sex outside of the confines of marriage. Uh, there's still benefits to it. It's still sex. But you're going to get burned. You take it out of the fireplace, you're going to get burned. So the first thing is if we want the good, pure, clean, undefiled sex that God desires for us, we must reserve it to, for marriage. So if you're not married... Don't do it. And if you are married, don't do it with anyone who's not your spouse. And don't play games. Don't play games with sex is too powerful to play. You don't go, don't play with the lion. Go, here, kitty, kitty, hey. 
You, know, you don't play around with these sort of things. So if you're unmarried, you might say, okay, yeah, don't do it, right. I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to get as close as possible to the line before I cross over. Or if you're married, you might say, oh, no, it's, I'd never cheat on my spouse. This is not cheating. This is so not cheating. I mean, I'm just, just going to be one drink at the hotel bar. We're just friends, coworkers. Nothing's going to happen. It's, it's too powerful. You don't play games. You, you, don't, you don't stand there in your living room and say, I would never build a fire in my living room. I might put some kindling on the floor. I might, I might put a little lighter fluid on it. Sure, I might light a match, but you, I'm not an idiot. I would never light the fire. That, that is idiotic. That is, that is stupid. Don't, don't, it's too powerful. You don't play around with this stuff. You don't get as close to the line as you can. You get as, you get as close to holiness as you can. You get as close to God's plan for you that you can. Because that's the way you have the best sex life. That's the way you have what God desires for you. You keep marriage pure by keeping sex in marriage. All right, that's, that's the big one. I think everybody expected that this morning. And it's, it's very, very important. But you know, you can, you can do that and you can still defile the marriage bed. You can keep sex in marriage and still uh, end up um, defiling and, uh, and dirtying your married sex life. So there's some other things that we need to consider. The other things we need to think about is that we have to, in addition to reserving sex for marriage, we need to avoid things that defile married sex. Now, there's a lot that could be put here. These are the main ones that I felt led to share today. So here's, here's the first big one that defiles married sex, lust. Lust defiles married sex. So even if you're keeping sex within marriage, you can still defile married sex through lust. So when Jesus talked about sex, that's why I don't feel too bad preaching about this, because Jesus talked about sex. I'm just being like Jesus. When Jesus talked about sex, he revealed the true standard. And he said, it's not just enough that your spouse is the only one you actually have sex with. He said the true standard is that your spouse is the only one you want to have sex with. That's my paraphrase. Here's what Matthew 5.27 says. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Okay, so what, what he's saying here is, he's saying, okay, you think you're doing really well because you're not sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. Good job. And actually, yes, good job. That is it's where you start. Okay, good. Continue with that. But he's saying that that's good, but it's not the whole picture. He's saying, how are you doing with your thought life? Are you looking with your eyes at women or men who are not your spouse such that you desire them sexually. That's lust. Looking at a man or woman with your eyes such that you desire them sexually, the ones that aren't your spouse. And he says that's just as wrong as adultery, and it's so serious, in fact, that you have to cut out your eye or chop off your hand to stop you from doing it. You should do that because that'll keep you out of hell. That's right, so lust. Jesus thinks this is hugely important. 
And it's, it's, it's incredibly hard for us to avoid in our day and age. I don't know what it was like in the first century when Jesus was saying this stuff, but good grief. Opportunities for lust abound today. There are visually stimulating images all around us. And to make matters worse, this is the sort of sin that you can do in the privacy of your own imagination. Anytime, anyplace. So lust is an ever-present danger, and it's also a serious danger. Jesus says it's so serious, it's better to lose your eyes than to do it. So if we want the marriage to be pure, we need to avoid lust. We need to gain mastery over ourselves, such that not only is our spouse the only one we actually have sex with, but our spouse is the only one we want to have sex with. Because lust defiles married sex. Right, that's still pretty vague, though. Still general thought. So let me get a little more specific and therefore more bothersome. Lust defiles married sex. Pornography defiles married sex. Come on, Pastor. Why do you have to talk about that? Why, why would you bring pornography into the church? Because it's already here. And I say that not based on specific knowledge of any person, but based on the statistical realities of the American church in the Internet age. Among all men, so all men in America, between 18 and 30, between all American men between age 18 and 30, 79% view pornography at least monthly, most of those multiple times a week. Okay, so it's just a general picture. Now, within the church, the latest survey, fresh survey from the Barna Group, shows that 54% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admitted to viewing pornography at least once a month. Let me give you those again. 54% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admitted viewing pornography at least once a month. And those are just the ones who admitted it. So pornography is here, it's prevalent, and it ruins married sex. That's the main point I want you to to see how this it defiles the marriage bed. Um, let me just even appeal to an, a secular source. There's an, an article in the New York Magazine by Naomi Wolf in 2003 that was just prescient about this. This was kind of the, the cusp of internet pornography taking off, and she made some observations that have only become more true as time goes on. But one of the observations was she said that you know the more that we expose ourselves to these hyper-realized, digitally altered, unrealistic images, the more we ruin our ability to appreciate the beauty of a real naked person in front of us. That's what she says. For most of human history, erotic images have been reflections of, or celebrations of, or substitutes for real naked women. For the first time in human history, the image's power and allure have supplanted that of real naked women. Today, real naked women are just bad porn. She's saying that the way that things have gone so, so far is, is exposure to pornography has dulled our senses such that we can't appreciate real people anymore. She continues, she says, the reason to turn off the porn might become, to thoughtful people, not a moral one in a way, but a physical and emotional health one. You might want to rethink your constant access to porn in the same way that if you were an athlete, you would rethink your smoking. She's saying there's, there's a real effect. She's saying we're recognizing an effect. People who have constant access, access to pornography are finding that it's 
hurting themselves sexually. It's hurting their interest in real people. It's hurting them just like eating junk food or smoking has real physical effects. She's saying we're finding out that pornography has real effects. She continues a quote. After all, pornography works in the most basic of ways on the brain. It's Pavlovian. It's one, uh, sex is one of the biggest reinforcers imaginable. If you associate it with your wife, with a kiss, with a scent, with a body, that is what over time will turn you on. If you open your focus to an endless stream of ever more transgressive images, that is what it will take to turn you on. The ubiquity of sexual images does not free love, but dilutes it. You see what she's saying? It's very wise, very astute. As far as I can tell, she's not a Christian, but she's just observing what's happening. She's saying, the more you do what God says and reserve your love and affection for your spouse, the more God's design reinforcement makes that love stronger and more pure and that desire more lasting. But if you open yourself up to dilute that desire by looking at images that, that, uh, that you then pursue, you, you then need those images to turn you on. You need those images to enjoy sex. And now you can't enjoy your spouse anymore. See, pornography defiles the marriage bed. I'm not just saying God says it's wrong, don't do it, although that's true. I'm saying even wake up, secular people are saying it's just like junk food, it's just like smoking, it's going to destroy your relationship within the marriage. And it does, it does. This is true if you're married or unmarried. So if you're unmarried, don't think, well, you know, I can just, I don't have a spouse to ruin the marriage bed, so I can just look at pornography. No. I mean, if you're married, you're going to reap the consequences now in your marriage. But if you're unmarried, you're going to reap the consequences if you ever do get married, if you do. You're going to bring all that baggage with you. You're going to reap what you sow. So pornography is incredibly destructive. I want you to understand, though, I recognize it's also incredibly hard to stop. Because we've got this trifecta, this incredible, unprecedented free access, anonymous access, and instantaneous access. I mean, this is just ridiculous. But anytime, anywhere, you got your smartphone, you get free, anonymous, instantaneous access to pornography. It's so prevalent. It makes it so hard to stop. So you're not going to be able to stop on your own. So you need to get help. And I'm offering myself. You can start with me. I've helped other people walk through this before. I can help you. I can get you in the right direction. I can direct you to resources. You know, get praying for you. Get some accountability. Get some support. Because as, as hard as it is to quit, the story's not over. You can get through. There's a lot of victory and freedom on the other side. You can break free from this. But we need to break free. Because pornography defiles the marriage bed. So lust, pornography. Let's continue the meddling because uh, not only is pornography a threat, but I think much of our entertainment defiles the marriage bed. I think much of our entertainment defiles the marriage bed, uh, defiles marriage sex. Uh, years ago, a Supreme Court justice famously defined pornography by saying, I'll know it when I see it. And I wonder what he would call pornography today that you and I just call entertainment. Here's a snapshot of pop culture. The covers on magazines in the grocery store aisle today are literally worse than the covers of Playboy 20 years ago. Game of Thrones 
is one of the most talked about shows around. It's the most popular show on HBO ever. It's won a ton of awards. The show is incredibly graphic. It ranks on some scales 10 out of 10 on graphic sexuality, uh, explicit contact, by one count out of 40 episodes in the whole four-season run of the show, only seven have not contained explicit sexual acts or nudity. So that's 33 out of 40 if you count. Um, Fifty Shades of Grey is an erotic novel, to speak nicely, uh, that is now the fastest-selling paperback ever, beating Harry Potter. It's going to be a movie coming out on Valentine's Day. You will hear about it if you haven't already. Just turn on the radio, the lyrics of pop songs, hip-hop songs, country songs, pick your genre. Uh, they celebrate debauchery in shocking ways that I don't want my kids to hear. And most movies and network television present sex in a way that both titillates and at the same time denigrates the great gift of God that is sex. So, you and I might be sitting here in the smug 44% of Christian men or 85% of Christian women who do not view pornography, but unless you and I totally abstain from popular culture, I think we do. I think we do. It is literally all around us and we don't even recognize it anymore. That wasn't porn. That was just a nude scene. That wasn't pornography. It was just a topless woman on the cover of a magazine. It's a fitness magazine. Come on, that's not pornography. The reality is our culture has become so pornified that we don't even recognize it anymore. And much of what we call entertainment is actively defiling married sex. We may say, I don't look at porn, but our, under, our, our undiscerning consumption of pornified pop culture is ruining our married sexual relationships. It's drawing us away from God's design for sex, for one man and one woman giving themselves totally and exclusively to one another. See, what we're doing is we're filling our minds with garbage, and then when we come together in the bedroom, we're bringing all that garbage with us so that all those images, all those expectations, all those attitudes, all those other people are there in bed with you. And they're choking your ability to have pure, good, clean sex with your spouse like God intends. Okay, so what am I proposing do I want a new set of rules? You know, go back to the days when it was wrong for Christians to go to the movie theater, watch Ten Commandments. Can we, can we go, just go, just go go to the movies. Let's just make a whole bunch of rules, right? Let's do that. So no HBO, no movies. You know, what else you want to throw out there? Now, I'm, I don't think we need new rules. God's given us good enough rules. I don't want to add to His. His are fine, right? So what's God's rules? Keep the marriage bed pure, uh, and don't lust. I think those can pretty much cover it if we would just live them out. They're good commands. They're good commands. I want you to see them as good commands. I want you to see that God is good. He is loving. He's not trying to keep you from fun. He's trying to keep your marriage bed pure and good and clean. So when he says keep the marriage bed pure, when he says it's better to gouge out your eye than to lust, I want to believe that. I want to believe that God has my best interests at heart. So that means, I think for me and probably for you too, some serious gouging of my entertainment options, the things that I consume. Because God is loving and God is good. Now, to help us in that, if you look in your bulletin, there's an insert today. There's some things called discernment questions. 
This is a tool I encourage you to use. Um, John Piper was asked, he's a pastor in Minnesota, he was asked, should Christians watch Game of Thrones? And out of that question, he gave 12 reasons, I put seven on this sheet, why he thought we shouldn't, and, and also 12, they're just really good diagnostic questions to evaluate anything as we live in this pornified, hypersexualized culture. How do we discern what to take in, what not to take in? I'm not going to go over these now. I encourage you to use these. This is a tool. Um, something you can use, maybe do a little gouging of the entertainment that we consume. There's still a question to ask, though. Those are three ways that we can, um, three ways that we need to uh, keep the marriage bed pure, uh, things that defile that. But now here's, here's the other question, though. Uh, what do we do if our marriage bed is dirty? So, so how do we keep it clean? But you know, we, we're not. So what do we do if it's dirty? Uh, it's really important to keep the bed clean, right? That's, that's, that's a big part. But it's also important to say, uh, what do we do when we mess up? So if you've uh, had an affair, if you've had premarital sex, if you've watched porn, if you've lusted after a coworker, if you've done something, anything that defiles the marriage bed, how do you get pure? Is there a way? And it's a crucial question because first of all, all of us are there. All of us are there. Nobody here has lived a life of 100% sexual purity. We all have dirty sheets. All of us, that's where we start. So we got to ask this question. How do we get pure? How do we deal with this? How do we get clean? Because we're all dirty. We're all dirty. I think sometimes when pastors say that, you don't believe that includes me. We're all dirty. Okay. Second of all, it's an important question because there's scary consequences for sexual immorality. Look at Hebrews 13, 4. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's not an isolated thing. I'll read you a couple other verses. Ephesians 5, 5. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Everyone who is sexually immoral has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Revelation 21.8 As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As for the sexually immoral, their fate is the lake of fire. If you can, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. I want you to see something there. Just back a few books, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's tremendous consequences. Tremendous consequences for sexual immorality. Hell. Not inheriting the kingdom of God. This is not insignificant. So what do we do? What do we do? We read the next two verses. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. Okay, that, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. We are filthy because of our sin. We really are. But we don't have to stay that way. Another tremendous verse, Isaiah 1.18. God says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Right, so, so we, we just got to be honest. We've got to face the facts. We deserve to die for the way we have misused the gift of sex. Right, this is not a sermon where we sit here and throw stones at all those people who have screwed up. We have dirty sheets. We have sinned. We have failed in the area of sex. And we deserve punishment from God. We are on that list, right? We're on that list. Those who don't inherit the kingdom. Those who are destined for hell. But what has happened? God has sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place so that His blood can wash us clean and He can give us inheritance in the kingdom of God. So what do we do? We believe the gospel and let Jesus make us clean. That's what we do. People get so upset sometimes when Christians start talking about sex because all they feel is condemnation. But we are the one group of people who have a message of healing in a broken and over-sexualized culture. We've all got dirty sheets, but Christ alone can clean us up. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian then I want you to talk to me after the service because we need to talk about this. What you need is you need to repent of your sexual sin. You need to repent of every sin and ask Jesus to make you clean and He will make you pure in every way imaginable. And if you're here today as a Christian and you find yourself convicted in bondage to sexual sin or maybe just filled with guilt or shame because of something you've done or was done to you, I encourage you again, talk to me or talk to another believer so that we can get this worked out. Because what you need is someone to help you. Someone to help you to believe the gospel again. To hold it, um, to hold it in, deeply in your heart and to know that Jesus has forgiven you. We need to repent of our sin. We need to ask for forgiveness. Your bed may be filthy right now because of what you've done, but Jesus can clean you up. One final verse, Revelation 21.14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. As many verses as there are condemning the sexually immoral, there's that many, if not more, verses offering hope to those who will simply believe the gospel, wash their robes in the blood of Jesus, and be made clean. Let's pray.